All right, so this morning we're going to pick up in chapter 51. We talked a little bit about chapter 51 of Isaiah last week. And we're going to revisit just a couple of things that I thought were, were worth uh, going through. Chapter 51, like much of Isaiah, is, um, is a, comp- a conversation between uh, the prophet, between God, between the people, that sort of thing. And we're getting, uh, our ears are starting to get a little acclimated to hearing that type of language. It's a little poetic sometimes. And as we go through it, uh, the more you go through it, the easier it gets, uh, at least um, at least for me. We're going to break down the first few verses. We looked at the first Oh, six or so verses um, last time. Maybe, uh, I guess we went to eight. Going to go through those a little bit more. And I think it's worth calling out a few things. We Remember that we said verses uh, one through three, the instruction was to look back to where we came from. To look back to where we came from. Verse 1, it says, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave birth to you in pain. On down, then I blessed him and multiplied him. In verse 3, we have, The Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make like Eden, like the... He will make her desert like the garden of the Lord. Look back. Look at Abraham and Sarah. Look how the blessings came. Look at how the earth was founded. Look at what he did in Eden. Look back to where he came from. And what do you see when you look back? The Lord was there. He was establishing good foundations. And even then, he was in the business of blessing us. Those are words of encouragement that the people that Isaiah was writing to need to hear. But it continues in verse 4. And here we have advice as we look at verses 4, 5, and 6 to look ahead, to look at what God will do. Verse 4, pay attention to me, O my people, and give ear to me, O my nation. A law will go forth from me. I will set my justice for a light of the people. My righteousness is near. My salvation has gone forth. My arms will judge the peoples. Lift up your eyes to the sky in verse 6. The sky will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. Its inhabitants will die. But my salvation shall be forever. Look at what's going to happen. Look ahead to what's going to happen because... God's going to bring justice, he's going to judge, and he's going to bring salvation. Again, words of encouragement. And then to wrap up this little section, beginning in verse 7, not looking back, not looking forward, now the advice is to look inside. To look inside. It says, listen to me, you righteousness, a people in whose heart is my law. God has written his law on our hearts. He said, look at that. Look at that. 
says in verse 7, Do not fear the reproach of man, neither be dismayed at their revilings. Uh, look inside. Look inside. Don't be afraid. Remember the things that are true. Verse 8, My righteousness shall be forever my salvation to all generations. I'm going to make things right. Now let's look at verses 9 and following. We have, just like those three small sections, we have three more sections. And they're indicated by this... Let's see, my recordings are echoing here. All right. They're indicated by the terminology awake. Verse 9, awake, awake, put on the strength, O arm of the Lord. And then on down, verse 17, rouse yourself, awake. And then verse 1 of chapter 52, awake, wake up. And the big brackets on this section, if you look in verse 9 of 51, it says, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. And then we have the same phrase in verse 10 of chapter 52, the Lord has bared his holy arm. So this idea of the arm of the Lord representing this power, his might, his ability to do things. We have a God that is able to do things. All right, let's break it down. Beginning in verse 9. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake is in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Wasn't it you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Wasn't it thou who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over? What's, what's he talking about there? What's the event talked about there? The sea, redeeming from Egypt... And I didn't realize this, but this, was it not thou who cut Rahab in pieces? Apparently Rahab was the name for a, a, a fictional kind of a sea monster thing that a lot of people think it was maybe a crocodile, and the crocodile was representing Egypt. So some of these word pitch, pictures that would have meant more to them. Uh, uh, certainly talking, you know, those two things together, uh, the animal representing Egypt and then the sea that... Um, uh, they walked over who made the depths of the Sea of Pathway. Obviously, uh, this is a story of uh, the exodus uh, from Egypt. Verse 11, So the ransomed of the Lord will return and will come with joyful shouting to Zion. Now, here's the thing. In verse 9, we have people saying to God, God, wake up. Remember how you rescued Egypt and uh, rescued us from Egypt and you brought us out um, can we want to see some rescue right we want to see some rescue well verse 12 this is where God starts what I think is a big theme of this passage saying all right all right I hear you verse 12 I even I am he who comforts you. 
I, even I, am he. Do you think he wants us to know who he is? No, yo, this is me. This is God talking. It's, it's really me. I, even I, am he. That's, I don't know the English there, but anytime you cram three personal program, pronouns into five words, it probably means something. I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you're afraid of man who dies and the son of man who is made like grass? Verse 13, you, have you forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth that you fear continually all day long? He says, where is the fury of the oppressor? Verse 14, the exile will soon be set free and will not die in the dungeon, nor will his bread be lacking. For I'm the Lord your God who stirs up the sea and its waves roar. And I put my words in your mouth and have covered you with a shadow of my hand to establish the heavens, to found the earth, and to say to Zion, you are my people. One commentator had a good point. The, uh, the, the Jews, the, the nation of Israel, these were not... This was not a, a, a seagoing group, right? Uh, they had some coastline there, um, but these weren't people that were really all about being in the water a lot uh, and uh, making conquests and all that sort of stuff. So um, the, this visual image of uh, the sea would have been a, not necessarily an unknown to them, but certainly an unfamiliar and a scary place when the sea was really raging. And God said, even that, I've got that too. So as I tried to go through and I tried to paraphrase these little sections, I said, for verse 9, God, wake up. And then in verse 17, God says, you're the ones that need to wake up. Let's keep going. Rouse yourself. Rouse yourself. Arise, O Jerusalem. You're the ones that need to wake up here. He says, you have drunk from the Lord's hand the cup of his anger. The chalice of reeling you have drained to the dregs. So my paraphrase is, You've been receiving the consequences of your own actions. You've been drinking a cup of wrath that has made you stagger. This, that's what this reeling is. You know, this chalice of reeling. It's a goblet of, of drunkenness, essentially, that you drain to the dregs, it says. And we have the picture of uh, this... This mother, it says in verse 18, there is none to guide her among all the sons she has born, nor is there one to take her by the hand among all the sons she has reared. Verse 20, your sons have fainted. They lie helpless at the head of every streak like an antelope in a net, full of the wrath of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. Again, my paraphrase, you're the ones that need to wake up. You've been receiving the consequences of your own actions. You've been drinking a cup of wrath that has made you stagger. It's affected all of you. Even your families can't help you. Verse 22. 
Thus says your Lord, the Lord, even your God, who contends for his people. I've taken the cup out of your hand, the cup of reeling, the chalice of my anger. You will never drink it again, and I'm going to put it in the hand of your tormentors. Those that have said to you, lie down that we may walk over you, you have even made your back like the ground, like the street for those who walk on it. In other words, I am for you, contending for you, right? Contending for you. I am battling for you, fighting for you. And the cup of wrath that you've been drinking from a little bit is going to be handed over to the very ones that have been tormenting you and threatening to walk all over you. Verse 1 of 52. Here we have the third section. Awake, awake. Clothe yourself in your strength, O Zion. Clothe yourself in your beautiful garments. O Jerusalem, the holy city, for the uncircumcised and the unclean will come no more to you. Shake yourself from the dust. Rise up, O captive Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the chains around your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. I mean it. You need to wake up. This is a new day. You can drop your old clothes. You can put on new ones. You can get out of the chains that have held you captive. The picture here is a city that has been besieged on all sides. There's fear. There's hopelessness. Resources have run dry. Hope is probably not just in short supply, it's probably gone. But, but, verse 6, My people shall know my name, therefore in that day I'm the one is speaking, here I am. And in context, we have this verse that's so familiar to us that I must admit I've not read in context before. How lovely on the mountains are feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Your city has been besieged. You are being attacked. Hope is gone. And now the scouts who have been on the outside say, oh my gosh. God's coming. God's, God's coming. We'd, we'd given up hope. Our rescue is at hand. And the, go, t- go tell the city. Messengers, get out of here. Go tell them. Good news is we're saved. How lovely on the mountains are the feet who brings good news of salvation. When all hope was lost... Now we have God coming. God has brought the victory. Verse 8. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together. They will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Break forth. Shout joyfully together. 
you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. Remember that passage a few chapters ago that when Daddy played the part about the Messiah and it was all about comfort ye my people? This is why Isaiah could say, be comforted in this because this is where it was leading. Verse 10, the Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. This is cool, right? This is cool. I was reading one commentator and they they were trying to come up with some sort of um, a mental image to kind of explain this. And I'm not, I'm not a great um, World War II historian, but they talked about the Battle of the Bulge where you had an American contingent there in... Belgium, I think, that was surrounded by Germans, but General Patton was coming and finally broke through the German ranks and they were rescued. Just a teeny, teeny fragment of a fraction of what we're seeing spiritually here. Now, Let's, um, let's try to bring this down a little bit. This is great, right? This is great. So let's dig in just a little bit more. So I wrote a few questions here. Why is it that we don't really come to really grips with how much we need God until our backs are against the wall. Why is that? Or is it just me? We're too self-reliant. Why is that? Pride? Hard-headed. Hard-headed. I see nods of hard-headedness. I'm nodding for hard-headedness. <laughs> Self-seeking. Hypothetically, if there was a guy who was maybe having an argument with his spouse, and finally realizes what the problem is, and realizes that the problem is with him, and the question is put, so... Why didn't you realize this at the start? Why did we have to go through all this before you realized what you were doing? Hypothetical. <laughs> you know, and I don't know. It's just hard. You know, there's hard-headedness. So I hear. Um, I think the sad truth is that that. When our backs are against the wall, when everything else is going crazy, that's when we're most open to the notion that I was wrong. Right? Or, to put it more generally, what I'm doing ain't working and I need some help. 
I think there are some themes that show up in the passage that we just looked at that are very familiar to us, right? So here's some I picked up. This feeling of we do feel oppressed at times, right? We feel surrounded at times. We feel disconnected. We forget God's character. Remember this idea that God has to remind us, I am for you, I'm contending for you, right? Why did he have to tell them that? Because I guess they forgot. And then we forget God's power. They're saying, you know, show your arm. And he's like, my arm's just fine. I'm still, look at what all I've been doing. Look what I can do. This theme also of looking back and looking forward, those sorts of things. Look in Ephesians chapter 1. Go ahead and turn there. As I was thinking through these verses, and I was thinking, um, this all kind of sounds familiar. And God being God and knowing who we are, knowing that he's, among other things, a good teacher, and good teaching is characterized by a certain amount of repetition, Look at how Paul starts to address this group of Ephesians. We went through Ephesians, right? We remember that this was this church that, that had been started. and It says, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. What's Paul saying? Look back. Look back. He chose us. He chose us. Verse 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. That famous verse that Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. When we acknowledge the truth, that's the perfect antidote for fear, right? The perfect antidote for fear. It says, we have redemption, we have forgiveness, he's bestowed his grace to us. And then in verse 10, he starts to shift where? To the future with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. In other words, there's going to be a day that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth, and we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 12, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ, there's hope. Verse 14 is word about inheritance. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. Look at, look at what God will do and then what God has done. 
some things that don't change. Well, rather than me go through my list first, tell me in big ideas, the themes that we've looked at, what are some things that feel very familiar to the group that Isaiah was talking about, to the group that Paul was talking to? What are some of the big themes that we encounter ourselves? What feels, what sounds familiar here? Forgetfulness. Forgetfulness. Thank you, Don. <laughs> Lack of gratitude. I mean, so, so so caught up in what I don't have, and forget to be thankful for what I do have. You know, look what you have. Right. What else? You look back at what all He's done for us in the past, and He's still going to take care of us tomorrow. He doesn't change. Remembering the past, we do tend to forget until we look at all that he's done, right, Gwen? That informs our faith to the future. What else? I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to do it my way. And why do we do that? This is really interesting. Um, I don't know if anybody listens to NPR. Um, National Public Radio, um, but the, the main thing I like about NPR is they don't have commercials. Um, but I heard an interesting article uh, just last night, Our um, Glasses show, This American Life. It does, it's long stories, you know, 20 or 30 minutes at a time. And the, story, the theme of the show was, why do people not do the things they know are right? even when they know they're not right. And the example he gave was uh, the basketball player Rick Barry, an old basketball player uh, from probably in the early 70s, late 60s. The thing that Rick Barry was known for was free throw shooting. One year sh shot 94% from the free throw line. One year shot like 93.7% from the free throw line. They said if LeBron James had even half of that accuracy, he would have had hundreds of thousands more points. Hundreds slash thousands, not hundreds of thousands. What was unique about Rick Barry was that they figured out the best way to shoot a free throw was underhanded. Right? And he got teased about it. But then he decided that making all those throws was more important than being teased about it. And they use the point, everybody, he, he, Shaquille O'Neal, one of the great centers of the world. Rick Barry tried to work with him. Horrible free throw shooter. And Shaq said, yeah, I know this is a better way, but I'd rather miss than shoot like that. <laughs> Wilt Chamberlain. 
possibly the greatest center of all time, horrible foul throw, free throw shooter, one year took Rick Barry's advice. He went from about a 40 or 50% free throw shooter to about a 70% free throw shooter. And ultimately he said, you know, I can't do it. I'm going back to my old way. His free throw percentage dropped back to where it was. Why is it that when we know the right thing to do, but we don't do it, a guy had some theories, none of which mentioned the word sin and pride and arrogance, but I think they're probably all in there. <laughs> it, but it was a fascinating story and I think a very illustrative thing. I mean, there are things that we all know to do. And I think a lot of times we think that knowledge is our problem, right? We, our knowledge is usually not our problem. But there's some sort of threshold that we have to overcome where we put our priorities in order. It's craziness. I don't have it figured out. But uh, I thought that was certainly interesting. Here's some other things that resonated with me. That there are some things that don't change, like I said, things that are still familiar. We still live in a sinful world. We are stressed out, worried, overwhelmed, and feeling out of control. What would you say the biggest emotions were of the people that Isaiah was talking to? Fear. Frustration. Fear. I would agree with that. Anxiety. Fear. Um, I heard another article recently that they did studies, and you know, when you're nervous and that fight or flight mechanism kicks in and your brain turns on the adrenaline and you start to breathe a little fast, sometimes you can actually hyperventilate, your fingers get a little sweaty, your muscles get tense, there's a little jittering there, right? Your heart starts to beat fast. Um, they did a study where they took these people, agreed to be experimented on, <laughs> probably college students, and they, they put them in a stressful situation where they had to speak in public, and every so often they would be interrupted and told what a bad job they were doing. <laughs> right? I'm grateful that you guys resist that urge. Um, but half the group they they told ahead of time now everybody knows stress is bad for you you're going to be in a stressful situation just kind of do the best you can right but half the group they told now you're going to feel some of the physical manifestations of this you're going to your heart's going to be a little poundy you're going to feel a little jittery but those are just evidences that your body is trying to help you do a better job it's trying to make you more alert and some of those feelings of anxiety are really just senses that kind of how you were made and, and preparing you to be more alert and to think more clearly and all these sorts of things. In other words, all they were doing is changing their mindset about what they were going to experience. The people that got that different talk actually did better, were less stressed, they had less stress hormones when they drew their blood. Everything was better, and the only thing difference was to change their mindset. 
So these people were fearful. But Isaiah and God, that is, was trying to change their mindset to say, it's all right. I got you. I know how this turns out. There's reason for hope. There's reason for that. You can relax in me. Yes, I know your backs are against the wall. All right, I better wrap up. I said things that don't change. This was a list as I was thinking through this. We live in a sinful world. We're stressed out, worried, overwhelmed, feeling out of control. Anxiety and fear are frequent foes. It's almost a tongue twister. We lose sight of the big picture. Though we are often attacked and besieged, God is always for us, with us. This is interesting. It is possible to have doubt and hope. They are not mutually exclusive. It is perfectly fine to say, God, I'm not feeling it. I am worried. I am overwhelmed. But I've, I have no choice but to put my hope and faith in you in spite of my doubts, in spite of the fact that I am not feeling like a strong Christian right now. I'm not sure I'm feeling much like a Christian even. But I'm... I, I'm just going to accept that you've got me. That's okay. That doesn't, I mean, that's normal, right? What's that? You know, I guess the answer to that is does God know we're hard headed? Yes. <laughs> He's been dealing with hard headed people for a long time and you can't help but think that sometimes, and you know, a lot of this is gets in the cause and effect stuff that I admit I don't have figured out. But as far as what God allows and versus what God uses, I certainly think God uses those situations to get our attention. And in the spirit of Romans eight, says, "I am going to make something good out of what doesn't feel good." y'all hear what Tim said? Thank God it's not all about feelings. Amen. That's probably where we should stop. Jesus didn't say, Jesus didn't say, I want y'all to just feel better. And that's going to that's gonna set you free. He said, the truth is going to set you free. And sometimes the truth you just have to accept by faith, even when it doesn't feel like it. Final thoughts? I have to share one funny thing. Talk about being a Christian. Yesterday I was being bad. She said, if you're not being very Christian, that's all right, man. I said, I don't want to be a Christian right now. <laughs> 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 That's the way it is in stubborn. You need to break me. <laughs> <laughs>
Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are always for us. You are always loving us. You are always trying to speak truth to us so that we're not afraid, so that we can see your arm in action, so that we can see that you are designing and planning a future that we can believe in, that we can trust in. And Father, I pray that you'd help us all to to um, be quicker to say, I need you, and to reach our hands toward you, and to uh, accept and to ask for your help. And we thank you for Jesus, uh, through whom we have that privilege. In his name I pray, amen. Thanks, everybody.